write your own job description. Don't let other people write your job description. One of my biggest learnings at Microsoft, and I think I'd done it in the past, is I literally wrote the job I wanted. I built it because I was watching to see what wasn't working. And I like to call that find a hole and fill it. And what I mean is you find a problem. And if you sit there and say, there's a hole and nobody's filling that hole, but you just keep talking about that. Okay, well, what are you going to do about it? I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it. From the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, this show might sound a bit different today because we're skimming from three different couches. The skim is still working from home for the time being because of COVID-19. Today, Teresa Carlson joins us on Skimmed from the Couch. She is one of the most powerful women in tech as the vice president of the worldwide public sector at Amazon Web Services. She has tens of thousands of clients around the world, including government agencies, educational institutions, and nonprofits. Sounds like a very, you know, low-pressure job. Teresa, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. Thank you, Danielle and Carly. Thank you for having me. We're thrilled to have you. So we're going to jump in with asking you our our favorite first question. Skim your resume for us. Well, I have been at Amazon Web Services now for a little over 10 years. And prior to that, I was at Microsoft for a little less than 10 years, where I ran the U.S. federal government business and helped set strategy there. Prior to that, I was at a little tech company, But my first career, I was a speech and language pathologist. So I made a completely different career change in my lifetime, which has been a lot of fun. So I've gone from healthcare to tech. And now in tech, in my world today, I get to work with a lot of healthcare organizations, which for me is fun. I can combine my original degree in college with my new passion of technology. So what is something that we wouldn't know about you that's not on your LinkedIn or your formal professional bio? Well, uh, my maiden name is Hatfield. Uh, It's kind of a famous feuding family from West Virginia and Kentucky. So I am originally from Kentucky. It's a beautiful bluegrass state. And I lived there until I was 23. And then from there, I moved over to Germany as a speech and language pathologist working for the Department of Defense in Nuremberg, Germany. So a lot of people don't know that because that was left off my resume. It's a long time ago, it feels like. It was a fun part of my career when I look back because I got to work with children up to five years of age with the military who were, you know, away from home and needed support and help with their children who had sometimes developmental disabilities so that was a lot of fun for me. It was, a, it was a really nice time. It was my first adventure of living overseas and learning about a totally new culture as well. Let's start there. You have mentioned you were a speech pathologist. It didn't make the switch to tech for a number of years. You were also a mom when you made that switch. Yes. Uh, what prompted the change and how did you think through it? 
I would like to say, Danielle, there was a lot of thinking to it, but actually I had been in, I had been working in the field of speech and language pathology for a company called Novacare Corporation that uh, when perspective payment changed in healthcare, which meant basically they went to a managed care model, the therapy world, rehabilitation world changed a lot of how you could treat patients. And the business literally almost imploded overnight. It was an amazing, wonderful business. We had rehab hospitals and uh, rehab clinics, and we did sports therapy as well. But our main business was in geriatric care. And the business just imploded. And when that changed, the business changed so much that I just, I kind of woke up one day and I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but you know, healthcare is just, I feel at the time it was like Groundhog Day, like nothing was changing. And I just didn't feel my career was going to go in the direction. And I just said, I'm going to make a change. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I kind of took stock of my resume, which was not bad. I had not only been a direct therapist, but I had managed people. I had I had managed facilities on a regional basis, and I'd help start kind of a new business model. So I said, I'm going to take these skills and figure something out. But I ended up getting hired by, I was living in Maryland, and get, I ended up getting hired by a tech company in New Hampshire called Keyfile Corporation. So I'd fly every week and work. I flew back and forth. And it was a workflow and document management company. It was a tech company that, and I told the CEO when he hired me, I said, you know, I'm a paper pusher, not a paper automator. But this idea of workflow and document management changed my world because all of a sudden I saw the intersection of a problem, a business problem, a mission problem, and that technology could be a catalyst to drive change in that. And I will tell you, my career today is still a big part of that premise that technology can change for the betterment the way we do things. And I never, I went into it not looking at technology for technology's sake, but again, how could it solve a problem or opportunity? And I mean, fast forward now 20 years, and I literally can't believe where we are. But I was very blessed because the CEO of that company saw something in me I didn't see in myself, I'll have to say. And for women, I think a lot of times we're uncertain if we can do things. And he used to take, he would put everything in a triangle. It, his, his strategy is, Teresa, here's how you do things. And he taught me so much and he let me do things that I didn't think I could do. He let me acquire technology and he would say, we have a great legal team. You can go do this. And I love hard problems. And I'm pretty smart. So I was like, this is a great challenge. And it really then became the callus of my career because I managed the Microsoft relationship. And those were in the early days where you would go to Seattle. And there was a few of us in a room with uh, Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer. So we got kind of great access as that small, good partner. But that's really, for me, change was in my heart. I loved what I'd done in my career, but I just, I, I felt like I needed to do something different. I didn't know what it was. And I just landed in something that I just absolutely still adore to this day and wake up with a bounce of my step with what I'm doing. Obviously, we're all familiar with Amazon, but what is your role? Like, can you just skim it for me? Like, what is actually, what is your job? (laughs) I, I love what I do. I run what's called public sector at Amazon Web Services. 
And Amazon Web Services is our cloud business unit. So we called it Web Services before there was any cloud in 2006. We're the largest, fastest growing technology company in the world today. So again, Amazon created something that no one was was like, really, what are they doing? They're they're creating this technology company on top of their retail side. Uh, But that was based on 10 years of learning from the Amazon.com side, how to run a marketplace. So we already had supported lots of customers globally in our retail operations we put all those learnings together with something called cloud computing. And I met my boss, the CEO of AWS, Andy Jassy, and we talked about, I remember meeting Andy in early 2010, and we talked about together paving the way for disruptive innovation and making the world a better place with technology. And he and I said, why shouldn't governments be able to have the same opportunity to use technology as a startup? They should have that. Citizens should be able to have the same experience. So we created this business unit called Public Sector, which is we work with governments around the world. We work with educational institutions, K through 12, higher ed. We work with not-for-profits and NGOs. So my job is to, one, make sure they have cloud technologies available to them. My job is to work with our public policy team to make sure legislators understand cloud and how they can acquire, buy it, and use it for driving economies around the world. We go into new countries around the world, and we help open up countries to the idea of digital innovation and economic development through technology. Technology today sometimes can outpace our laws and legislative initiatives. So our job is to educate them on the new things coming ahead. What, you know, from a technology standpoint, what's what's on the horizon, not just what we have today. You work with, I mean, Amazon, which does, as you said, so many things. It's become a huge part of our lives in so many different ways. And then you also work with governments and other equally as big companies, how do you keep things moving? Like, I'm assuming there's a lot of red tape. (laughs) How do you keep innovating at companies where it's probably not always easy? That's actually a great question. You know, I like to say working with governments around the world is not for the faint of heart because you add a bunch of layers of complexity on everything else that you try to do with any commercial company. Um, But you have to have a passion for doing that. And I would say for me, I started this business from scratch. When I started in 2010, I went from a very large team with a lot of revenue at Microsoft to a complete startup. I had no people. Well, I had two that had only been there like four months. And me, I had no office. There were a few days I was like, what have I done? Like, how am I going to build this business? So then I just said, okay, we can do this. You know, I got busy uh, and said, here we go. And basically, I had to hire, one, the right people to help me get going. So that was key. Hire and develop the best. So I hired the right leaders. We started in the U.S. We literally would go and knock on doors of our, our government customers in U.S. federal first. And we started telling them about cloud. We would go to Capitol Hill 
And we would tell, you know, uh, U.S. senators and representatives about what we were doing. And believe it or not, they would say to me, I knew a lot of them from my time at Microsoft. And they would say, are you here to talk about books? Are you here to talk about taxes? And we're like, <laughs> no, cloud. <laughs> so they didn't even know what cloud was. But, you know, keeping the business going is about mechanisms and cadence and focus. So for me, it was focusing on a plan that I built in the beginning to go win the U.S. federal government and then keep adding on. And that's literally what we did. And I've kind of taken it segment by segment. Now I have teams around the world. I have customers in 172 countries. I have teams on the ground in 38 countries. Uh, and we're a multi-billion dollar business unit. But that was literally, it was grit and focus because a lot of the places we were going in, we were doing a total transformation of how they use technology. For individuals like us on a day-to-day basis, we pick up our, you know, our iPhone, our smartphone, we're using digital tools all the time. But for governments, to your point, Danielle, they're not always the most cutting edge. So you have to find those innovators and build off the innovators. And I would say our innovator was the CIA. I think you're the first person ever, definitely on this show, to ever say, (laughs) and our chief innovator was the CIA. Well, you know, I know a lot of people don't really talk that much about, uh, you know, the intelligence community, but they serve a great purpose, you know, to keep the nation safe. The intelligence community does, our defense community, which, you know, they don't talk about. We think about the James Bond movies and everything. They've always been actually great innovators. They just have not talked about it a lot. We, with four members of our team, won a $600 million opportunity with the CIA competing against other vendors. And people were shocked. They couldn't believe that we had won this. And it set a tone around the world where people said, wow, if the intelligence community can use cloud computing, it must be pretty secure and good. Why shouldn't we use it too? And, And by the way, why is that even important? It's important because they can try things, experiment, scale fast, fail fast without spending a lot of money. We all hate as taxpayers the government right? Spending too much money on things they shouldn't. And technology is one of those big areas. I want to take a a step back, which is I'm listening to you talk about going to these big fancy meetings with these big fancy successful people. Like you're like casually meeting with Bill Gates, you're get promoted and somebody sees something in you and you're, you're trotting around the globe. Want to just get your perspective. How do you take stock and like actually have the confidence to go into those meetings. You're talking about taking meetings with some of the most powerful people in the world. You're trying to convince them about technology. At the end of the day, like you're an individual, you're someone who switched careers, you're somebody who has learned a, a lot as you as you've kind of gone through this. And I'm really curious where your confidence comes from and how you tap into that in those moments. You, you know, I don't think about that much today, but I will share... I, I'm from a very small community in Kentucky, uh, and every day I feel very blessed at my career and what I've been able to accomplish. My dad was a basketball coach, a high school basketball coach. My parents were both teachers. You know, I never have ever felt there was something I couldn't do. So I think part of it is my DNA, but also I like a good challenge. 
And I don't like to be told no. (laughs) Uh, So I think for me, I look at every challenge as an opportunity. And throughout my career, one of the things I like to tell women is write your own job description. Don't let other people write your job description. What does that actually mean very tactically? A lot of women at AWS, even I, when I go around the world, I try to meet with the women across every country and just ask them how things are going. And one of the enlightening things for me was a lot of the women started telling me, I've not applied for this position because it says you have to do this and I haven't done that. You know, whatever it is, it's a skill. I'm like, but, but can you do that? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, then you should apply for this. So it kind of made me realize they are waiting for the perfect job description to be written to each and every one of their skills when they actually can do all this. They may not have done it formally, but they can do it. So what I shared is when I was at Microsoft, one of my biggest learnings at Microsoft, and I think I'd done it in the past, is I literally wrote the job I wanted and went in and told at the time my boss here's what I want to do. And I actually built a role for strategy and operations for U.S. federal government. They had never had that role. I built it because I was watching to see what wasn't working. And I like to call that find a hole and fill it. And what I mean is you find a problem. And if you sit there and say, there's a hole and nobody's filling that hole, but you just keep talking about that. Okay, well, what are you going to do about it? So I like to say, write that down and say, here's how I'm going to do that. I'm going to solve that. So you write a job description or you take a job description that's there and you rewrite it and you say, I can do all these things, but I can, I can also do these things. So you begin to show and demonstrate to your leadership that you have capabilities that no one really thought about. And some of that is just demonstrated because you take initiative. And I want to see women, I encourage them, Take initiative. If you have an idea, do it. Just start doing it and then show the results. I promise you it will be recognized. The nature of your job is you have to be a good negotiator. You are negotiating big contracts. You're dealing with a lot of bureaucracy. And I imagine that can be very frustrating at times. Extrapolating for all of us who might not have the same kind of exact work obstacles daily, walk us through how you approach negotiating. I think the first thing when negotiations is making sure that you first have painted the vision and strategy. You have to work from the customer backwards. At the end of the day, when Jeff built Amazon, our top leadership principle is customer obsession. And I actually believe customer obsession is one of your top negotiating strategies. Because if you put yourself in a customer's position and you work backwards from there on negotiation, then you begin to determine and understand what are the most valuable things for them in that negotiation. So what are the gives and gets? And for us, it's important that we show them return and economic value. So you have to do the hard work, especially when you're doing very large, significant deals, to show a customer the value you're bringing to the table and what solutions you're gonna bring to the table. And in my space, believe it or not, price is not always the most important element in large government contracts or even large enterprises. They are looking for a competitive advantage. They're looking for speed, agility, reliability. So it's important, Carly, that you demonstrate all those. And 
for me, every no is an opportunity to get to a yes. So you have to understand why they're saying no. Really be reflective of that. And then go back to the drawing board and come back. Negotiations is one of the things I love the most. And I love a big, big, hard deal to go get. What's been the hardest deal you've had to negotiate? Uh, We negotiated our region in the Middle East, our first region in Bahrain. And actually, my team was the first team to go into the Middle East for Amazon. But I had to learn a completely new culture. Well, also, what's interesting about that is a lot of Middle East countries won't negotiate directly with women. I mean, that's something when Secretary Clinton was Secretary of State, like she talked a lot about that, like some people literally just wouldn't meet with her because she was a woman. So I'm yeah. that's fascinating that that was something that you had to do. Yeah, it, it it's changed. Every part of the Middle East is a little different. It is changing there. It's still not where it should be by any stretch. But But that was hard because I had to learn a different culture. I had to learn different terms. And we were breaking into a totally different continent. So for me, outside of my first large deal at AWS, which was the intelligence community, which meant Amazon had to change. We had to do a lot of things to change to do that. But on the negotiation front, that was the hardest because we had to negotiate telecommunications, land. It was a it was a full end-to-end model. I want to talk about AWS's DEI initiative called We Power Tech. It's something you've been spearheading for a while. Can you talk about what it is and also talk about the focus on supporting a diverse pipeline? I think it's something that a lot of companies, including the Skim, are very focused on right now. Yeah, you know, we're we're constantly looking for new ways to bring in, you know, diverse talent into AWS. And we've done everything from we've created community college degrees on AWS, which we're trying to work more with the underserved communities in these areas, to We Power Tech, which is about diversity across the board. And I started very early when I was at AWS in the very early days, I started a program called Hashtag Smart is Beautiful. And that was focused on very young girls, getting them to understand the power of beauty is smart you know, getting them to understand your mind is power if you use it properly, your intelligence. And we decided we needed to be much broader than that. That was actually too narrow. And the We Power Tech brand is about diversity and inclusion because all those pieces are missing. And what we do here is one, when we're in any country, we find the most powerful women we can. We have a discussion about the local community And we create kind of communities of practice to get them to keep it going when we're gone. We take all of our partners that we have. We, a lot of times, will go into U.S. embassies and have events for women in the community because we need to learn about those local regions and communities. But we do technology uh, immersion, training, introduction. We talk about the different types of skills and talents And we have over 70 partnerships. So we go out and look for all kinds of not-for-profit groups. We find any program that will partner and we support them through, you know, technology days. And what I like to do is introduce the concept that every job is not a tech job, but there are all kinds of jobs for women in diversity, which are business jobs, sales jobs, marketing jobs, PR jobs, tech writing jobs. So just getting the spectrum of their thinking changing 
But with with young girls and women, we are finding we just have to start a lot earlier so that we're doing programming around their, what they love. What we've seen is that with young girls, they like to solve a problem. So we've run programs where in schools, we'll go in and say, show us something that you can do to help your community. And it's amazing. These girls like dive in and they come up with all these really creative things that they should be doing to help their school, their community, the disadvantaged. And then we help them kind of outline that idea and then create it through technology. And if I could just say one more thing in the Middle East, which I've I've really learned to love the women of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I didn't know is like in Bahrain, Saudi Arabia is the same, the UAE, over 60% of the engineers are women. Yeah, They are so smart and they're the ones going to school and getting the degrees. They just don't have the leadership roles, which we have to change. We are obsessed with that stat as well. I want to move in to our lightning round. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. Are you a morning person or a night owl? I can stay up all night, but I'm definitely, I'm best in the morning. What's the last TV show you binge watch? I just finished Sweet Magnolias on Netflix. Oh, I'm watching it. I want to watch that. It's so sweet. What is the best work from home productivity hack you've got? Mine is I definitely do exercises sometimes, not on video while I'm doing conference calls to kind of get my exercises in. The other thing that I do is I've changed my call schedule where with my teams, I do a morning call with international and an evening call with U.S. And I put lots of people on on a call with a very tight agenda so we can understand what's happening around the world with COVID. And that allows us to be more protective throughout the day. So that, and then we do jumping jacks at the end of every session. So both you're getting in good work time and exercise. (laughs) What question do you ask yourself when you're about to make a big money decision? Oh, I ask myself when I'm about to make a big money decision, am I going to love this? Is this something I'm going to love? And how long am I going to love it? I use the method of, is it a two-week thing, a two-year thing? I am a little bit impulsive when it comes to my own personal purchases, and I love fashion. So on, on those things, I'm like, oh, I love it. Okay. Last question. Do you have a hidden talent? I think my hidden talent that no one knows about is I was a DJ. Oh. And I still like to, when I was in college, I did DJ. I kind of stalked the guy in the booth and I actually dated him for a while that taught me because I wanted (laughs) to learn. It's changed a lot from when I was in college. (laughs) I love that. Teresa, thank you so much. You guys are amazing. Thank you for all you're doing. I really appreciate your program. Hi, everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female-founded companies. We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim from the Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. My name is Mandy Price, and I am the CEO of Canaries. Hi, I'm Star Carter, and I am the COO and the General Counsel of Canaries. We started Canaries both because of the experiences that we faced in the workplace. Star and I attended college together. 
we continued on to Harvard Law School together, and then we actually even worked at the same law firm together. So we experienced many of the same things. And after experiencing the effects of systemic racism in the workplace and throughout our lives, we knew that we wanted to do something to change it. Although it's very important for the leadership of companies to be committed to these issues, that ultimately, collectively, us using our voices is what's going to bring about that change. So with Canaries.com, what we do is we offer a safe space for employees to go and talk about diversity, equity, inclusion issues in the workplace. We provide all kinds of insight to uh, potential job applicants or to just people within their own job, right? What we also do is we aggregate and anonymize all that data and provide insights to companies on things they can do to make their workplace more equitable and inclusive. Both Mandy and I started at the same law firm, as she mentioned. We both had various experiences, um, and that's really the impetus of our platform. And my experiences range from being a young intern and being asked inappropriate questions about bedroom behavior, all the way to being a senior in my law firm and having my partner not make eye contact with me or funneling work to me as a senior associate from a junior associate. For me, I remember being called the diverse partner when I was in a meeting, all the way to as a junior associate being asked by senior colleagues if I got into Harvard legitimately. So it's instances like this that really instilled within us that we needed to create change and work towards a better future for our children. Our platform's really twofold. It's one, it's a place for employees, all employees to have their voice be heard. And that's really where the name Canaries comes from. It's Canary in a Coal Mine. And back in the day when miners used to take Canaries down, it would help them to ensure that the work environment was safe. And so that's how we came up with Canaries. But the whole point is really making your voice heard, talk about your lived experiences without negative career ramification. And it's also good for job seekers. If I am a diverse individual specifically, and I am looking at some jobs and, and job offers, I can go to the platform, see what other people are saying, and figure out based on how we measure diversity or inclusion, whether it's somewhere that I think I can thrive. So recently, we've seen many companies issue well-meaning statements and make donations to causes empowering diversity and speaking up against racial injustice, which is great. However, many of these same companies haven't committed to that change or they're unsure how to make these changes within the organization. So we work with organizations to ensure that they are producing that anti-racist climate, that equitable and fair environment that we all want. How do we ensure that continuous feedback loop happens throughout the year? And so that's what the Canaries platform allows. Your employees are able to continuously provide that feedback in an anonymous fashion so that they are able to speak truthfully. But in addition to that critical feedback loop, we provide the data and analytics, again, all anonymous, all aggregated based off that employee feedback to let you know the exact things you can do to make your workplace more inclusive. So we're here to help. We want to make sure that we are a support system for employees and we're providing the resources and the data and the information that companies need to make these changes within their organization. We're at www.canaries.com, and that's uh, spelled a little bit differently, K-A-N-A-R-Y-S. And then we're on all the major social media platforms on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And you can find us there with the handle of at Canaries, Inc., uh, and that's K-A-N-A-R-Y-S. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. 
Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 